श्री राजमोहन गांधी जी श्री शशिकांत कपूर लेडीज एंड जेंटलमैन टू बिगिन विद आई वुड लाइक टू पे ट्रिब्यूट टू अनादर एमिनेंट इंडियन हु सेक्रीफाइस द लाइफ फॉर इंटेग्रिटी एंड यूनिटी ऑफ इंडिया हुज डेथ एनिवर्सरी वी विल बी ऑब्जर्विंग टुमारो लेट श्रीमती इंदिरा गांधी फ्रेंड्स आई कंसिडर इट अबाउट प्रिवलेज टू हैव बीन आस टू डिलीवर दिस इयर सरदार पटेल मेमोरियल लेक्चर टू माई माइंड सरदार पटेल हैज बिकम इमोर्टल एंड वुड बी रिमेंबर्ड बाई दिस ग्रेटफुल नेशन एज लॉन्ग एज इंडिया लिवस फॉर हैविंग ब्रॉट अबाउट अ यूनाइटेड एंड इंटेग्रेटेड इंडिया दिस वॉज नॉट एन ईजी टास्क फॉर सून आफ्टर इंडिपेंडेंस वी वेर थ्रोन इन टू ए कैटस्ट्रॉफिक टर्मोइल कॉज बाय पार्टीशन विच रिजल्टेड इन मैसेकर एंड माइग्रेशन ऑफ मिलियंस ऑफ पीपल ऑन बोथ साइड्स द मोस्ट इम्पॉर्टेंट टास्क वॉज टू सक्सेसफुली परसुएट द रूलर्स of more than 554 states and to assimilate them in the structure of new india and become a part of the nation when people look with hindsight it may appear as though this was an easy task but when we know what trouble was caused by the ruler of hyderabad state and how it was only with the intervention of army that the problem of this state could be resolved we can easily imagine how nearly impossible the task would have been if a majority of the rulers of different states had taken an unreasonable and militant stand it is therefore to the credit of statesmanship as well as firmness of sardar patel that this problem was so efficiently tackled the biggest malady which resulted firstly in the partition of india and which has continued to plague us even today is the question of the two nation theory based on religion this question of relationship between two major communities namely the hindus and muslims has to be understood and tackled with a sense of finality because even today this is the main question which once again is seriously threatening the unity and integrity of india for which sardar patel had worked till the end of his life therefore i intend to deal with this in today's lecture in my humble opinion the most important aspect is to consider whether religion can be the only basis for establishment of a nation state as is understood in modern political parlance as we all know whereas a state is a people organized for law within a definite territory a nation in its ultimate analysis is a people 
who want to have their identity as a separate entity and are willing to live and die for it. Nationhood thus is a concept which surpasses all other loyalties. The basis for this feeling of nationhood may arise from various factors such as language, ethnic identity, regional aspirations and also religious affinity. But, as I said, in the ultimate analysis, all these factors must lead to a people feeling the strong and irrepressible urge for establishing their identity as a separate and independent national entity. In India's history, this subcontinent, which has natural geographical identity demarcated by the Himalayas in the north and the ocean in the south, has never been one nation in modern political sense throughout its 5,000 years of known history. This Jambudweep or Bharat Khanda, as it was known for ages, has been a cultural crucible where streams of people of different races, ethnic origins and faiths have been pouring in as rivers into an ocean. First known entrants were the Aryans who came with a highly evolved Vedic culture grown through a few thousand years of their journey from Arctic region through Russia, Central Asia and Persia. They assimilated with an equal adva equally advanced culture of Sindhu Pradesh and thus evolved a new Sanatana Dharma which later spread throughout the land in the period of the great epics. Then came the Greeks who saw the great river Sindhu which looked like a veritable sea augmented by the waters of five other rivers. They called it Indus. And the land surrounding became for them India. Then came the Muslims who pronounced Sindhu as Hindu and for them and their Islamic successors the land became Hindustan and the people therein Hindus. Hence one does not find this word Hindu either in the Vedic literature or in any of our epics. In fact the real Hindustan surrounding Sindhu is the land of today's Pakistan as and what we have is Bharat. In spite of constant struggle for power between kings and chieftains, they developed a broad cultural ethos of harmony and tolerance based on the spiritual and universal philosophy of Vedanta. This ethos, which was identified by the word dharma, always meant a broad-based total concept of the way of life. This way of life was called sanatana or perennial, having a capacity for constant renewal as nityanutana. And it is because of this that in spite of various differences, a common bond of cultural as well as religious unity grew 
and prevail throughout the length and breadth of the country. In the earlier times, there was no written history, but it were the epics like Ramayana and Mahabharata, which not only told the story of the people and their heroes, but also propagated higher values of life and inculcated them in the people. The influence of this dharma spread widely in the entire region of Southeast Asia. Later, Buddha's teachings, which were accepted as part of the Sanatana dharma, spread in much larger part of the world. The basic concept which was believed to govern the entire universe and life was visualized by the seers as a supreme power without form or attributes, that is nirakar nirguna, and thus perceived the entire creation was considered as only a manifestation in different forms of that one single supreme source of energy. But the followers of different paths or religions, due to limited interpretation, emphasized only the differences and claimed that their concept of God and the way of life given by Him was alone true and superior to others. They thought it their duty to convert others to their faith, and although originally all faiths preach love and brotherhood, the begotted followers were willing to resort to violence and force for this conversion. The thinkers of the society, or seers and prophets as they were called, always reminded the people of the basic oneness and brought them back on the right path. Thus, whenever stagnation arose, out of narrow vested interests, the basic tenets of harmony based on wider connotation of dharma were emphasized and reiterated by saints and savants. The best example of this is the earliest reiteration during the period of Mahabharata in the form of Gita, which in fact is a summary of the Vedantic thought. Similarly, it has been categorically stated in authorities like Bhagavad Gita that the categorization or varna, that is the four broad classifications were based entirely on guna and karma, qualities and actions, and not on birth. This is clear from the dictum, Janmana Jayate Shudro Samskara Dvijamuchate. To allow this distinction on the basis of vocations by birth, by calling them caste or jati for historical reasons, even today, is the worst distortion of Vedantic Sanatan way of life or dharma as was originally known. I once again appeal to all present-day Shankaracharyas and authorities of Sanatan Dharma to restore the teachings of Gita and Adi Shankara to their original glory and all-embracing character and declare finally 
that there is no sanctity for birth-based caste and that the same are hereby abolished as far as Sanatana Vedantic Dharma is concerned. Even otherwise, in present times of modern industry, trade and education, the traditional vocational birth-based caste have become totally irrelevant. Reiteration of caste distinctions for narrow benefits is another major threat to the integration of our national unity. It is pertinent to note that the basic tenets of Gita, namely the oneness of the Supreme, the right path of karma and dharma, coming down from the Supreme, whenever people deviated or went astray from this path, are nearly identical with the basic principles of Islam as enunciated in the Holy Quran. They are Tawheed, that is oneness of God or Allah, the Supreme Creator, or Rubul Alameen. The sending of Nabi or the director of the right path, Nububiyat, and lastly, Akhirat, or the consequence of your actions on the last day of judgment. The only difference is that in Islam, although the Supreme Allah has no form and is nirakar, he is saguna and has all the famous attribute. He is the creator, that is, quality of rububiyat. He also shows right path of conduct, that is hidayat. He is very kind and just, Rahman or Rahim, and he is the dispenser of justice. In the end, there is adalat. It is my humble belief that if the basic principles of Vedantic philosophy, which does not accept any discrimination and distinction amongst the human beings were to be understood in the spirit in which it was clarified and re-established by Adi Shankaracharya, most of the distortion resulting in disintegration caused in later times, either on the ground of faiths or caste, could have been avoided. If Shankara could assimilate the Buddhist path by describing Buddha himself as the latest incarnation, I have no doubt that if Christianity and Islam had come to India before his time, Adi Shankara would have had no hesitation in calling Christ as Avatar and Muhammad as Muhammad Avatar. To him, it would have made no difference what form of worship of the Supreme was adopted by the Christians or Muslims, or for that matter, by Jews, Parsis, or any of them. Thus, it would be easy to assimilate Islam in Vedantic Dharma if we adopt the right approach. Looked at it from this perspective, 
the only way the vast section of our society following Islamic faith could be assimilated is to recognize them as similar to other paths and accept it in the Sanatana and Vedantic ocean. Even from practical angle, more than 95% of the people following Islamic or Christian faith are those who in the recent past of just few hundred years got converted to either Islam or Christianity. Those of these faiths who came from outside Bharat were just a handful. It is also true that majority of those who became converts were the exploited section of the society living under the tyranny of a system which had developed pockets of stagnation and obscurantist rigidity. This was compounded by feudal autocracy, which in combination with bigoted priesthood was resulting in cruel rule over vast masses of illiterate and downtrodden poor. It is these poor and the exploited who found refuge in conversion to new faith, and when it came to be backed by imperial authority of the Muslim rulers for centuries, the conversions not only proliferated but also got consolidated into a new and separate religion. However, in spite of adoption of new faiths, can it be presumed that these people are deprived of their inheritance of a much larger past and heritage extending over a few thousand years? This will be obvious when we see that culturally, that is in terms of language, literature, customs, festivals, music, rituals, etc., the people adopting Muslim faith have continued their earlier cultural traditions in spite of conversions, as can be seen in any part of the country like Kerala, Tamil Nadu, Maharashtra, Gujarat, Bengal, etc. Language of the Holy Quran is Arabic because as repeatedly stated in Quran itself, the merciful Allah sent for the Arab people a chosen messenger, Nabi, from among themselves to teach them in their own language the principles of the straight path from which they had deviated. Quran repeatedly states that earlier also similar Nabis or messengers had been sent for different communities speaking different languages. Thus, the language of Quran and the chosen Nabi would have been different for different people. Yet hardly a few Muslims in India can read Arabic or for that matter even Urdu, which also is not the language of the Holy Quran. Hence, culturally also, the Muslims are even today harmonized in the Bharatiya Samaj or Indian society. Economically, as well, 
you never hear of any distinction being made on the production or commerce of goods on communal basis. If religion was the only basis for the feeling of nationhood, we would not have seen the creation of Bangladesh, nor could we be witnessing serious dissensions among the people of Pakhtunistan, Baluchistan, Sindh, and Punjab. Indeed, there would not be so many states all over the world who believe in Islam and yet are independent. To my mind, therefore, the only way we can do away with the obsession of the two-nation theory based on difference in religion which continues to dominate our minds is first to state that merely by conversion to a different faith the people whether following Islam or Christianity cannot be considered as a different or separate people. This approach will be perfectly in keeping with the teachings not only of great savants like Adi Shankaracharya, but of the modern thinkers like Vivekanand, Gandhi, and Tagore. It must be realized that any other approach based on hatred or historical grievances of aggression will only lead to inciting bitterness and passions constantly. India's secularism has always meant the concept of Sarvadharma Samabhav, that is, equal respect for all faiths or religions. In fact, better understanding of the basic principles of all religions or faiths and paths should be a mandatory part of our educational system and instead of banning the same as we have done under Article 28 of our Constitution, we should have made specific provision for their instruction. This will encourage the spirit of understanding and tolerance and bring about real samabhav. But as far as a society governed by rules of law, particularly in a democratic polity are concerned, no distinction should be made by identifying a people as a separate religious political entity. In a democratic system, political majority and minority is a variable criteria which changes according to the votes cast by the citizens in every election. But to recognize a particular people as a minority and that too based on an irreversible factor like religion is to condemn them as second-class citizens in perpetuity. It is my considered view that having begun both in our preamble and in part three of the Constitution dealing with fundamental rights with the declaration of our adherence to the principle of equality among all citizens and having clearly stated in Article 15 that we shall not discriminate against citizens 
on the basis of religion, race, caste, etc., we have deviated from this principle in Article 30 the moment we recognize the rights of a religious minority. We have already given in Article 25 right of belief as well as propagation of religion to our different citizens. Having done so, we should have once for all stated that as far as democratic rights of governance, administration, and the rule of law, electoral, civil, criminal, etc. are concerned, all citizens will be treated as equal. And we shall not consider anyone as a separate and permanent political minority based on the irreversible criteria of religion mentioned in Article 15. Because to do so is to verily accept and affirm our belief in the two-nation theory based on religion. And as long as we continue to do so and treat a particular people merely because of their religion as a separate political entity and then deal with their rights as a gesture of charity from the majority, we negate the very concept of equality, integrity, and unity of India. One can understand and agree that in the pre-independence period, mainly due to machinations, provocations, and instigation of the foreign imperial power, that the pernicious concept of the two-nation theory based on religion became a reality. But can we say that we have tried to undo this in the post-independence period, both in our thoughts and our actions? Is it not true that all political parties, including the major political force, namely the Congress, have willy-nilly succumbed to the concept of recognizing a large section of nearly 140 million people of our society as a political minority based on religion and then continued to deal with them both for electoral gains and otherwise as a vote bank? Repeatedly we find new champions of the cause of minorities vying for their support when political power is at stake. I sincerely believe that in so doing we are being most unfair to this section of the society who will never be allowed to feel as equals with the so-called majority and would always be forced to look to others for support, even for their economic well-being. At every stage, they'll be made to believe that they are being denied equal opportunities mainly because of their difference in religion. This, in my humble opinion, is the most undemocratic and cruel act of humiliation towards any people. When I try to place myself in the position of a Muslim, or a Christian young man who feels that he is deprived of 
certain opportunities because of his religion and that he will have no chance ever of coming on par with those of majority, I feel utterly suffocated and humiliated. Then again, the so-called Hindu majority itself is a myth when considered from the fact that with the slightest blow of caste-based reservations, the entire society has been shaken and scattered to a thousand birth-based permanent factions. To club them together and call them collectively a majority is thus a political misnomer. Opportunities because of his religion and that he will have no chance ever of coming on par with those of majority, I feel utterly suffocated and humiliated. Then again, the so-called Hindu majority itself is a myth when considered from the fact that with the slightest blow of caste-based reservations, the entire society has been shaken and scattered to a thousand birth-based permanent factions. To club them together and call them collectively a majority is thus a political misnomer. I therefore appeal to all thinking men in this country to once for all bury the differentiation of the pernicious two-nation theory based on religion by rejecting it and then ejecting it first from our minds. The only way this can be done is to accept and assimilate people mainly of Islamic faith as well as other faiths like Christianity as being similar to other faiths of the Vedantic Sanatan Dharma or eternal way of life which believes in upholding the entire society without any distinction. This has been categorically stated in the very famous meaning of the word dharma, namely, dharayate iti dharmaha. Dharanat dharma ityahu. Dharmo dharayate prajaha. Secondly, by suitably amending the constitution of India, we should declare that there shall be no recognition of a religious minority. In this context, there would be no need to have minority commissions for religious minorities, which in terms is a negation of the principle of equality. The same is true about recognizing and identifying certain castes and then thinking of conferring of certain privileges on them. This again results in denigration and humiliation in perpetuity. It is high time the Hindu law was amended and birth-based caste system abolished by law. I feel that the greatest danger of disintegration of Indian society lies in recognition and reiteration of these irreversible identities, whether based on religion, caste, language, or otherwise. This is how the erstwhile Soviet system as well as the state of Yugoslavia have disintegrated. The solution lies in two democratic and secular assimilation in the spirit of harmony 
by recognizing all as truly equal citizens. A beginning can be made by deleting the column of religion and caste from our census and from all institutions of education, services, and administration. If once we look at this whole problem of refusing to identify and differentiate members this of society on the basis recording. of these irrevocable and irreversible factors, even the problems of Kashmir as well as the remnants of separatist tendencies in Punjab can be resolved. Once we declare that we shall not recognize any people as majority or minority based on their faith, nor shall we consider any political rights on that basis, the question of Kashmir will cease to be a matter of dispute between India and Pakistan. We can then, with open mind, allow the people of Kashmir to elect their representatives freely and in a fair manner, and whosoever gets electoral majority should be allowed to govern as a part and parcel of a democratic state of Bharat. In the context of treating them as equals, as spelled out by me above, the Muslims of India will progressively feel that they are not being treated as aliens or as second-class citizens. And in practice, when they see that they are not, they are not being discriminated against, slowly but surely, the assimilation in the entire Indian society or Bharatiya Samaj will take place. The superficial and artificial problems like Ayodhya will then not arise because all forms and places of worship will be part and parcel of the Sanatana Vedantic Dharma. In such an atmosphere, people of both faiths and, as a matter of fact, hand in hand with people of other different faiths as well, can join together in building religious places of worship in a common complex to declare their faith in the this oneness of God, Radio the Supreme. Thus, belief in goodness will gain in importance in keeping with the modern religion of scientific humanism. Assimilation does not meet elimination of one by the other. It only means harmonious coexistence by treating both as similar under a common holistic concept of universal oneness. This idea of assimilation, which was strongly advocated by one of our greatest Vedantic thinkers of recent times, Swami Vivekanand, is likely to be resisted by the narrow-minded communalists, casteists, fundamentalists, and fanatics in both communities, as it would adversely affect their sectarian vote bank vested interests. Yet, for all broad-minded patriotic thinkers and politicians, this will be acceptable as a just and permanent solution to this long-pending vexatious problem. Some of the things that I have pleaded for in this lecture may appear to be rather radical, but 
history has shown that no half-hearted approach to any long-standing problems can help in finding solutions. I have earlier made similar suggestions for political restructuring, for accepting presidential system combined with parliament somewhat on the French pattern. I have also been pleading for the creation of smaller and larger number of states with greater administrative and economic autonomy so as to remove regional imbalances and achieve faster and more balanced growth. I have also been pleading for economic restructuring by accepting, accepting economic democracy and participatory work culture so as to make India competitive, efficient, and self-reliant. Maybe I am ahead of our time. But I have no regrets. And I sincerely feel that my suggestions are in national interest. And if nothing else, they at least deserve to be seriously discussed and debated. The historical tragedy of India, that is Bharat, has been that the leaders of this land have always squandered and wasted their energies in internal rivalries and power squabbles and have been willing not only to allow but even to invite a handful of outsiders to take advantage of our internecine strife, conquer us and rule over this land for centuries. This attitude continues even today and our political weakness is being exploited today in the economic field. And to my mind, there is equal danger from new economic imperialism if we do not see the writings on the wall. The need of the hour is to approach this entire question of internal strength, unity and integrity with the statesman-like sagacity and iron will like that of Sardar Patel. It is only then that his dream of a united and integrated India can be achieved. Thank you very much. Thank you, Shri Sathe. May I now request our guest of honor, Shri Rajmohan Gandhi, to deliver his presidential address, Shri Rajmohan Gandhi. Shri Vasant Satheji, Shri Shashikant Kapoor, dear friends, a president, I suppose, has some rights, so I would like to modify the title of what I say. Uh, it will not be a presidential address, but some presidential remarks. It is a high honor to be asked to be the chief guest and to preside at this evening's Sardar Patel Memorial Lecture by Sri Vasant Sathe. 
I thank All India Radio, Sri Shashikant Kapoor, for extending this opportunity to me. It is a great joy and privilege to me to be in Nagpur, I must confess, for the first time in my life. I apologize for denying this privilege. I must apologize to me above all. But it is a real honor to me to be in Nagpur, which has a central place not only in our geography, but also in our history. I am particularly grateful that I have this chance to preside at this stimulating lecture given by Sri Vasan Sate. Sri Vasan Sate has been a distinguished cabinet minister who combines great administrative skill with great oratorical and parliamentary skill and who is known especially for his candor and he has lived up to his reputation again this evening. Sardar Vallabhai Patel, who guarded our unity and our integrity like a powerful sentinel at our borders, also was our Minister for Information and Broadcasting. Srivasan Sate, who was an extremely capable Minister of Information and Broadcasting, has voluntarily chosen this theme, the unity and integrity of India, some threat perceptions, and I think there is an appropriate symmetry in that. Sri Sate has been audacious in his recommendations. He's audacious in his expectations. He's frank in his articulation. In effect, he would like the religious labels to be abolished. He doesn't want the abolition of religion, but he would like the abolition of religious labels that seem to divide one group from another. He would like to abolish the caste label, and I think left to him, he would like to abolish caste altogether. These are audacious expectations. When I look at his lecture on the one side, and the matrimonial advertisements in the newspapers of India on the other. I asked myself how easy this expectation's fulfillment will be. Sri Sate has delved into history and correctly drawn the conclusion that nowhere in the world has one religion united one nation. He has given the recent example of Bangladesh. But I wonder, looking at history, and looking at the time in India before Islam came to India, when we did not have so many religious labels, and we had only one religious umbrella, we still had our divisions. And I wonder whether history really teaches us that the abolition of the religious label will actually produce unity and preserve integrity. Sri Sate's final remarks about the internal squabbles with which sadly this country has been cursed, the truth of those remarks makes me wonder 
that even if religious labels are abolished successfully, a big if, and even if caste is abolished successfully, an even bigger if, I have a feeling that Indian ingenuity will find ways of preserving our rivalries and our squabbles for some other reason, in some other name. I hope I'm wrong. Tomorrow, Sri Sathya rightly reminded us, is the day when Srimati Indira Gandhi was assassinated. Tomorrow is also the day of Sardar Vallabhai Patel's birthday. And Sardar Vallabhai Patel, if he was eminently successful in safeguarding the unity and preserving the integrity of India, I would like to suggest that this was above all true for two reasons. One, he applied the law without fear or favor. He was a human being. His heart went this way and that way. But when it came to apply the law, he applied it without fear or favor. He applied the law to the Nizam of Hyderabad, but he also applied it to the Hindu Maharajas of several hundred states. He applied the law without fear or favor. And the second reason for his success was that when he died, he and his offspring were poorer than when they were before he entered the freedom movement. Sardar Patel, people forget, was not just a peasant leader from Kheda district in Gujarat. He was a barrister from London. And he was a very successful and rich lawyer in Ahmedabad. But he tossed away his wealth. He tossed away his money-making career and became a servant of the Indian people. So that when he died, and after he died, his daughter Maniben Patel was living in a small attic in Ahmedabad. She, who was the first lady of India in some ways, she at whose sight Maharajas and Nizams and Nawabs trembled, lived in an attic in Ahmedabad after her great father was no more. Sri Sate has spoken on the threat perceptions to India's unity and integrity. I would like to make three remarks on that broad subject. I would like to submit that our unity and integrity is affected, one, if there is a wall between the state and the citizen. When the citizen finds that politicians don't deliver the goods, and bureaucrats don't deliver the goods, and judges don't deliver the goods, he gets alienated, and the root for division and a root for weakening the integrity and unity of our nation uh, is born. That is reason number one, a wall between the state and the citizen. And reason number two is a wall between one limb of the state and another limb of the state. I'm not referring to the chief election commissioner and other limbs of the state. But I'm referring to, say, Karnataka versus Tamil Nadu over water. We, as Sri Sathya has rightly pointed out, for centuries have led the world in teaching the primacy of the spirit over matter. 
but we don't have the common sense to apply the truths we know to resolve one dispute over sharing water between two states. One state fights with another state. The legislature may fight with the judiciary. The politicians blame it all on the bureaucrats. And we know what the bureaucrats think about the politicians. So when one limb of the state fights with another limb of the state, that is also an occasion, an opportunity for the plant of disunity to grow. And the third opportunity is provided when there is a wall, a chasm between a citizen and citizen and between one group of citizens and another group of citizens. And this may be due to caste, and this may be due to religion, and this may be due to language. But when we have the concept of he is not one of us or she is not one of us, we are special and they are less than special. When we have that, then we have the third opportunity for division to flourish. These are some general remarks at the end of Sri Sate's very important and valuable lecture. And I wanted to say that we should respect the clarity with which he has spoken and the earnestness with which he has spoken by giving his suggestions very careful consideration. May I thank you for giving me this opportunity and once more thank all of you for giving me a chance to interact very briefly with the people of Nagpur. Mm -hmm.